Hey, this is Laura. And Steven. And this is our podcast, Midday Musings, where we take our lunch break to talk about some of the things that are on our mind. Today, we're talking about the Kardashians and this summer, the summer of women, and J.D. Salinger, that guy who wrote that one book one time. Anyway, let's get into it. Hey, Steven. Hey, Laura, what is going on? Oh, you know, just podcasting. 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 Frogcasting. 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 There may be frogs. Ooh, I hope so. I love no frogs. No promises. Okay. It's good to know. I, I thought I'd check. How are you feeling this fine day? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling well. I'm feeling rested. I'm feeling not tired, surprisingly. Ooh. Yeah. You heard it here first. After 30, you can experience days where you are not tired. You can. You just have to sleep a little bit more than you're comfortable with. <laughs> That's all you have to do. That's it. Just do that for longer than you want. Uh, but yeah, how are things in your world? I am actually also very well rested. Uh, it was an accident because I didn't set my alarm last night. Oh, fantastic. But uh, yeah, I, I woke up with an incredible amount of rest relative to what I had expected. What? And uh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling kind of good. Yeah, actually. I was watching the uh, the House of Kardashian Peacock docuseries, three episode docuseries, and it contained none of the things that I wanted it to, but everything that it promised to. Oh. And so I'm sort of percolating on it. You said it contained not the things you wanted it mm. to, but the things it promised you. What did yeah. you want it to contain? Okay, so I'm actually kind of fascinated by the Kardashian effect on society. The The common perspective is that it is extremely toxic and they're the worst people ever and they have corrupted children with their, their brazen capitalism. But other people did it first. So for me, that's not the interesting thing about the Kardashians. For me, what's really interesting is that it's this empire of women like, not since the Spartan heiresses have we seen such powerful women. That's true. And to be fair, the Spartan heiresses didn't do much for their society either. By the way, guys, Google Spartan heiresses. You know how Sparta is thought to be this great military power that's so, like, full of machismo, etc.? Fun fact, they had a legal system that created a class of women called the Spartan heiresses. It was this. Whenever a man lost his life in battle, which was pretty frequent due to the Spartans fighting everyone, they would receive all of the inheritance from that man's family. And so what these women would do is they'd marry a lot of men, and those men would keep dying, and they would concentrate more and more wealth into these families. I think there were six of them. And as a result, you had this empire run entirely by rich women. Like, they would throw a bunch of money at the governmental apparatus of Sparta, to get laws that were beneficial to them. And they did that for 200 years until Sparta was conquered. Fun. Feminist. We love, we love a queen. Very fun. <laughs> love to hear it. And so, like, the Kardashians to me... Kardashians. Sorry, Kardashians. That's Star Trek. The Kardashians to me represent something, like, a little bit beautiful about our culture. Like, we suddenly have this idea of wealth and success that is attached to, what is it, six or seven women? I, I can't count and I, I don't follow them. I haven't seen Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I've just been in the culture when they happened. Yeah. So 
they created an idea of wealth that was specifically feminine. And while they are not feminist, that to me is feminist. Secondly, they created an idea of beauty that was heavier than like the crazy, crazy thin girls from the 90s and the aughts. So women had to be like Callista Flockhart thin, Paris Hilton thin to be considered attractive. And then the Kardashians show up, Kim Kardashian specifically, and they're like, guess what? You can be curvy. And now suddenly women can actually be 20, 40 pounds heavier than skeletons and be considered attractive. Not for 20 years of my life. Not for 20 years of my life. This is steps forward. And the third thing that they have accomplished, which is incredible to me, is Kim Kardashian's retention of the idea of being so beautiful has made the face of beauty a middle-aged woman. Like, in America? Dude, this is, this is remarkable. This is like Alexander the Great levels of conquering in terms of culture. So that's what I find fascinating about the Kardashians. They, they took power, they changed what attractiveness was that into something that was more permissive than it was before. You can be brunette, you can be curvy, you can be middle-aged and you're still hot which I know is not necessarily constructive in the absolute sense, but for everyday women, it's kind of nice that we don't have to be these little pipe cleaners that are all blonde and all look the same. We have a broader idea of beauty now. So they helped broaden beauty standards. Yes. They helped concentrate more wealth in the hands of women because a lot of them are women. And what was the third one? They also... Now women can be middle-aged and still considered viable in terms of attractiveness. Like, we made... used to discard women at, at 35. That's, like, the great joke in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that is a good... That is a great step forward for women. You know, regardless of whatever flack they may get publicity-wise, it, it you can't deny their impact on the culture. And honestly, their positive impact on on feminism i think that makes a lot of sense yeah even though they are explicitly not feminist like they've been asked and they've said no um another uh, another thing that is good for the culture that they've done and that was highlighted in uh the house of cardassian docuseries is that they prepped the culture for interracial relationships in a way that hadn't hadn't really been seen previously in the culture mm. and i i think that's yeah that's that's a great win I mean, like, that, that's a big step forward, too. Honestly, that, interracial relationships are important and it's important that they, they get a spotlight. Yeah. And in the 90s and aughts, it was a lot more oh, yeah. uh, than in the teens and the 20s where we it, I, I feel like it is far less of a thing. I mean, when you think about movies from the 50s, 60s and 70s, there were key plot points where there was a secret interracial couple and it was a big problem because their respective families and communities got very up in arms about it. So they Dude, had to keep it a secret. I've met, I've, I've listened to my mom and aunt talk about their relationships or what the perception was around dating when they were teenagers and, you know, they're, they're baby boomers. And the level of racism applied to their potential partners. Mm. Like my, my aunt liked Asian American men and like, that was not okay. And they lived in California, so, you know, you have a diverse group of, of men you can choose from, but some were simply not okay. Mm. It's progress. You you don't have to like it, but you can't 
ignore some of the benefits, right? Yeah. So even in a, I'd say, fairly somewhat progressive state like California back in, you know, I mean, 40 this was some like years the ago. 50s and 60s. So like had, this is from when they still yeah, had yeah. the covenant clauses in certain housing developments. You can like Google this. Certain housing developments had a covenant within them that disallowed black people from buying in the in the division and my mom and her sister lived in one such division until they were five mm -hmm. so like history is closer than you think the point i'm trying to drive home is that it's not that they were specifically you know had racist thoughts it's that they the the culture and society that they were in had expectations that were like kind of racist yeah they was, operated in a culture, yeah, that, a culture was, that was kind of racist that was hostile was to, hostile to diversity yeah yeah and i think kind of bringing it back to the the present with the kardashians that's that's fantastic that now again a interracial couple was the spotlight of keeping up with the kardashians even though there is that joke that kanye is always kind of hiding in the background he's just he's around but he's also kind of doing his own thing um <laughs> oh yeah kanye kanye's up to his kanye business yeah perpetually <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, another one thing that the docu-series did bring to my attention that I didn't know that I maybe should have is that uh, when Chris, Chris Jenner, now Chris Jenner was married to Robert Kardashian, Kardashian, I keep calling them Kardashians. Um, it's because you love Star Trek so much. I actually do. Yeah. When they were married, they were besties with OJ Simpson and Nicole. Oh, yeah. Like, it, like they were the couple best friends. And that's why uh, Robert Kardashian uh, was his defense lawyer, O.J. Simpson's defense lawyer. But, like, Chris was independently best friends with Nicole. So she was, like, hanging out with her a day before the murder. Holy cow. Anyway, that was wild information. And I can only imagine. Boy, if you ever think that you and your, your friend, uh, you and your partner have drama with your couple friends... Holy cow, imagine the drama with that couple friend. Like that's, whoo, whoo. That, that is a lot to deal with and a lot to unpack, honestly, for everyone. I love knowing that though. I love knowing that connection. Thank you, Peacock. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what's been on my mind. Dude, I, I had no idea that was even out, you know, but it, it's always a joy to learn more and more about the Kardashians and their their cultural impact, you know, on on, on our society. Dude, the cultural, the things I have seen just being alive for this short while, like I've only got a little over a quarter of a century in, but I have seen light years of advancement. Like you can't really understand. I, I feel like Gen Z can't really understand the world before the Dove Real Women Have Curves commercial. Mm -hmm. Like we lived in a society where the term heroin chic was not just acceptable, but a desirable aesthetic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And we don't anymore. We we actually have a movement called body positivity. However imperfect, it exists and it did not. Yeah. And it's a great step forward, you know, that, that you can be any size and it's a lot more acceptable now than it used to be. And social Especially media. Especially for women. Like that was not that was not the case for no, a long time. Absolutely, because there were so many gatekeepers to media. It really is, I think, social media's influence. Women well, everyone has this ability to run their own publication platform. That is what social media is. You are running a publication platform. 
and if you are famous or can accrue an audience, then you have absolute control over your image. An idea that simply doesn't exist in the 20th century and probably couldn't exist prior to that. There's incredible power in the individual, whereas in the 20th century, all of this power was managed through different high, always male, frequently white producers of, of content, media, and, and brokers of power. Like, we were always a product that was middleman to an audience, and now we can simply go to an audience. That is huge. And people do not like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a lot of really recent, recent folks, recent women who have done some amazing things and some big breakthroughs. Taylor Swift, I believe, became the first female first singer artist. billionaire. First artist billionaire. Her net worth now is $1.1 as of a couple days ago, which is fantastic. It's true. She is Time's person of the year now. Right? Margot Robbie has been directing, producing a ton of work, I think, from as far back as the the Harley Quinn movie mm -hmm. to, to more recently. I don't think she... She obviously didn't write Barbie, but was definitely... I think she was a producer Oh, yeah. She was Barbie. a producer on yeah. Barbie. She which was, actually, was huge. It was yeah. such a hit this summer. Yes. Yes. It, it was really a great summer to be female. It, it, it was such a good summer to be female. I, I am afraid of the future because like there's always a backlash, guys. <laughs> I, I would love to ride this energy into the sunset. But it, I, yeah, caution, caution dogs me at every, at every step. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I find very interesting is you have two movies that came out on the same, on the same day last mm -hmm. year or earlier this year barbie and oppenheimer mm -hmm. oppenheimer is i i still haven't seen either which i'm very embarrassed to admit publicly however barbie is it's funny it's light it has you know a female-centric cast oppenheimer is dark you know based on real events based on the life of Opp the life of oppenheimer and obviously the creation of the nuclear bomb and it's it's dark it's it's a little grittier, you know? It's Christopher Nolan. It's Christopher Nolan, right? And Killian Murphy, which is kind of the standard Hollywood, big, big popular movie. However, Barbie, like, stole the show. The marketing killed it. And the movie itself was just a, such a breakout hit, even though they both were released on the same day. I've heard so much more about Barbie than I have about Oppenheimer, even though I'm sure Oppenheimer was also very, very good. I mean, I would challenge challenge your perspective that Oppenheimer is a blockbuster film. To me, it's, it's much more clearly Oscar bait because oh, yeah. it's a biopic produced by a prestige director featuring a prestige actor. Those, those don't make the numbers. They they make the critics go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the marketing on Barbie is like a case study in how to go hard. I, I almost feel like the marketing of Barbie deserves its own college curriculum course. I would take that course. It was it was incredible work. Like omni-channel AF and the impact, the impact is undeniable. Speaking of marketing, though, and on the topic of the Summer of Ladies, I real I um, found out in an interview that Taylor Swift's mother was a marketing executive. Really? Prior to being the mom. 
Basically, the article said that she grew up on a Christmas tree farm with her dad, who was at that point a stockbroker, and her mom, who was previously a marketing executive. So I don't know at which point she left her job. But the idea that she, that Taylor Swift was like mentored, because that's kind of what parenting is, by a marketing executive makes her incredible savviness in the realm of marketing makes so much sense to me. And it's not dissimilar really to the Kardashians in so much as it's clear that Kris Jenner is a marketing genius. Mm -hmm. And within the docuseries, you're, you're um, exposed to how clever a negotiator she is. Mm -hmm. I, I love this, I, this um, thing I'm seeing where strong mothers produce even stronger, more successful daughters. Yeah. It portends well. And you can see the huge impact on mm -hmm. the level of control that a female artist or an mm -hmm. artist can have over their their work over their future and their life mm -hmm. when number one they have a strong mentor like a marketing ex executive to work mm -hmm. off of and number two they just feel more in control of what's they have an idea of how to how to get themselves in that direction as a contrast britney spears who i'd say was not not exactly Taylor Swift of her, of her day, but was incredibly popular, huge pop star. Mm -hmm. Like she was the it pop star figure for 10, 15 years. And she didn't come from a marketing executive background. She came from, you know, just a kind of a regular family background. And because of her lack of, I guess, experience with like a marketing executive, lack of mentorship, she really wasn't able to maintain a lot of control over her image over her product over her music and it was it was pretty unfortunate because I, I love britney spirit she brought so much to our world and i think she's she's now regaining more control over her her life and her assets but it was a good 10 years where we just didn't know where she was because uh, or what because she was of the doing conservatorship? because of the conservatorship that had a stranglehold over what she could do and what she couldn't oh yeah and that peeks into actually another area of interest for me which is how the uh late 90s and 2000s it girls are recovering yeah a lot of their their reputation in the 2020s Britney's journey, Britney Spears's journey has been extraordinary to watch, of course. Mm -hmm. Paris Hilton's journey is also very interesting to me. We just pummeled these women in the aughts. Not us personally, but the news media and uh, the culture at large just terrorized these ladies. Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, and Lindsay Lohan specifically. But they're clawing their way back and... I love Paris's journey. I, I read her, her autobiography, which is not in any way bad. Like it, it's unreasonable how good it is mm. actually, because she has an incredibly astute perspective on her, her role within the aughts, what she had designed her career to be, how she was treated and how all of these things kind of bleed together into a larger cultural idea around women. Yeah. It's not bad. I understand that it was ghostwritten, but like the core element, like all of it, all of it is worth your time. You will walk away with a stronger sense of self if you're a woman. And her activism around, around these sort of scared straight military schools, all the schools that we were sending problem teens to in the 90s during the like Maury Povich era, like her attacking them is beautiful. She has a platform 
and there is just rampant abuse and i think i think we can kick these these little guys in the tail the the private industry around child management i guess i would say is rife with abuse oh yeah and it was going to go on forever until someone with a loud enough microphone yelled at it so like that that's beautiful like they Paris Hilton's journey is also one that is extremely redemptive, triumphant. I mean, I'm here for it. Britney Spears, I love that that we have freed Britney from the conservatorship and that she has control over her life, but like we did a number on that girl. Mm. It, it's clear to me what Paris Hilton is going to do. It's less clear to me what's going to happen with Britney Spears just because she has come from such a challenging foundationless place her her family seems dysfunctional in the extreme and i'm rooting for her but golly gee it's been rough yeah and then Lindsay lohan i don't know she's in hallmark movies now i i haven't followed her as closely because i wasn't as interested in her work but the redemption arc of of the the 2008 girls also beautiful for feminism a great year to be female they're bringing it back they're bringing it back they're wherever bringing it back. whatever challenges they dealt with they're 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 bringing it back and one thing I do love about Hollywood is they love a recovery story, whether it's Paris Hilton recovering um, recovering her power, whether it's Taylor Swift just dominating the industry. Or oh, whether yeah, by it's... recovering, by reworking mm -hmm. her masters, yeah. like creating something new to destroy the value of something that was taken from her. Yeah. Or whether it's Robert Downey Jr. overcoming years of of substance abuse and then I think he was actually in jail for a while and then going on to be an Iron Man and just blowing away the box offices and setting the stage for all of the future Marvel movies like we love we love a comeback story we love a comeback, love comeback story kid. but I I mean view everything about Hollywood mm -hmm. and pop culture with a certain amount of skepticism because we like rising raising people up so that we can destroy them <laughs> like that that's our game or that's the culture's game it is, it is about crafting narratives, and that's why the redemption arc is really appealing too, but we would be equally happy to watch the redemption arc become another flaming spiral into rock bottom, because the drama. But maybe with social media, we, we can overcome mass media's attempt to turn everyone's life into a drama-filled narrative. Maybe we can just tell our stories. Well, I, I've, always, I've always seen our celebrities, and I think a lot of people see it like this even if they don't realize it as like our they're like our greek and roman gods they're what the they're what the gods were for the greeks and the romans back in the day they they exist in this world that is above us somewhere they have these lavish lives they have everything they could want and we love to see them rise we love to see them fall we love to make up stories about what's going on in their life some people worship them. Some people fan out. So you've got the paparazzi that follow them constantly. They're they're just they exist somewhere else, and we love to tell stories about them. Whether that's them rising, whether that's them falling, and the media loves to craft stories about that. So it's oh yeah. To me, that that's what they are to us. But they're but at the end of the day, when you take all of that away, they are actually real people who are in sometimes unfortunate media spirals <laughs> or cultural narrative spirals. What you have to remember is that the history of Western media or Western narrative or Western theater comes from Mycenaean Greece and specifically from human sacrifice. So 
In Mycenaean Greece, this is this is prior to classical Greece that everybody gets taught in school. Mycenaean Greece is pre-Athens, pre-Sparta, pre it's it's like Minos and stuff. So what they would do is they would have these festivals yearly where they would sacrifice to the gods. And what they wanted to do was give them give the gods the most beautiful members of their society. Like it was an honor to be chosen as as sacrifice. It would be ideal if you looked like a member of the royal family. So let there's, that percolate in your mind for like a little bit. There's something there. <laughs> yeah, they they want you to either look like the elite or they want you to be the most beautiful. It's like great if you're a virgin, but the core of it is they rise you up, they celebrate you, and then they like kill you, pull you apart and spread your spread your remains on the harvest to ensure a good harvest. This is what begins theater. And so over the course of Greek civilization, people got to the point where they're like, maybe we shouldn't kill people. Like maybe we should just like pretend to. Like everyone loves the festival, but the, the body count is not cute. Yeah. Um, so then it became a, a sort of pantomime of sacrifice. And then it became, you know, oh, okay, so this is interesting. We like this, but we want more. So they, they would add a second player to the drama and it would be like a call and response thing. And that, that develops in uh, sophistication. You start seeing things that look like theater. Then someone adds a third character. Then the Greek chorus shows up. What I'm trying to communicate is that though we have distanced ourselves from the origin of drama in Western society, it was always about, at its core, sacrifice. Within the false self is always a trace of the truth self. So you can see that in news media, how we like to kind of sacrifice our celebrities. Oh, totally. Also, like, side note, and I don't mean to be morbid here, but the darkest part of, like, the human sacrifice ritual for the harvest is that we have today blood and bone fertilizer. Like, 100%, it actually helps the harvest. So, sleep tight. So there was something to it, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Like, the problem is human beings have never been stupid. Across all of human history, they never are stupid. They're just horrifying. <laughs> like, they just put their brilliant low brains, put things together and have a very different system of morality than we do right now. Because, like, they're concerned about actually surviving, and we're concerned about how it looks. Any anyway, um, Stephen, what's going on with you? What are you thinking about? What I, well, I mean, all the things we just, we just talked about, but I was thinking about J.D. Salinger, actually. Totally, total pivot, total left turn. I mean, he's kind of like the opposite of a media story, where he wrote one giant, he won't, he wrote one giant blockbuster book and he was like, you know what? I'm just going to head out. Yeah. Yeah. But the fun thing about him, though, and I didn't want to bring him up earlier because we we were talking feminism. We were talking women. It felt mm -hmm. weird to interject him earlier. Um, but once we got into theater, I said, OK, let's let's talk about Salinger. So J.D. Salinger, fun fact about him is he actually. He came from a good background. His family was pretty decent i think he, he wrote a story for his mom early on and she really liked it really liked it gave him a thousand dollars and said this is a masterpiece you know was very supportive of him but also could afford to be supportive of him mm. you know i fully support you he went to summer camp every year 
Uh, and then at a certain point, he joined the military during World War II. And he actually fought in every, in like a number of notable conflicts. He was at Battle of the Bulge. He Ooh. stormed the beaches of Normandy. Dang. Yeah. Fun fact, at the time, apparently he was already writing Catcher in the Rye, his most famous novel. So he actually had the, the transcript of the beginning of Catcher in the Rye in his knapsack as he was storming the beaches of Normandy. Oh, that's that's kind of fun and beautiful. Right? And I hadn't thought about it, but Catcher in the Rye is actually, because he has such a military background, mm -hmm. it's actually a, um, it's a bit of a military story, mm -hmm. but couched in a coming of age story because it's something that he used to process a lot of his trauma around the military, mm -hmm. his experience in the military. And uh, it's not, it is a coming of age, but it's a military story with the skin of a, uh, a coming of age story. Uh, I just, I found that really fun. I, I had no idea about a lot of J.D. Salinger's background here, uh, but like a lot of other great authors like Tolkien, who was also in was World War One, I, I think. I mean, if you were alive during the first half of the 20th century, you're going to have a world war. Yeah. A. Milne was also in World War One, I, I believe. Walt Disney drove an ambulance in World War One. Yeah. I enjoy Catcher in the Rye, but it, it's sort of with a bit of a rolling of the eyes of the sort of very jaded uh, Holden Caulfield character in it, like going, okay, yeah, yeah, Holden, I, I get it. But when you think about it as a story of a mil like a military vet who has PTSD and is mm. just trying to find meaning in life again, it has a lot more nuance, you know, than just this kid who's like, everyone's phony, everyone's stupid, and I'm just trying to figure my way out. Because that is also a struggle, but it gives it layers and it gives it meaning. So I, I found that very um, insightful and I just wanted Fair to share enough. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not personally a Catcher in the Rye hater. Like, I, I understand that it's very fashionable to uh, to bully up on Holden Caulfield a little bit. Right. But the the teenage years are rough. To quote Olivia Rodrigo, Rodrigo it's brutal out here. It is. It is. And, and I'm, right. I'm willing to let an adolescent feel the brutality of coming of coming of age. It's not easy or fun. And it's rough when your brain isn't fully developed and you're kind of seeing things through filters that have no sense of time and no sense of meaning because meaning is accrued through experience and perspective and you don't you don't have that yet yeah and fun fact he fully hated the attention he got from catcher in the rye like, yeah was i know that's why he was like i'm i'm out guys yeah like it it came out it's as if people were waiting for it to come out they just were craving it they were craving catcher in the rye and it came <laughs> out and he said i'm good like you said, I'm out. I'm. I don't want any more media attention. I'm set. I don't want. I don't care. Because he, as a writer of drama, understood the essential nature yeah. of drama, which is they want to eat you. Yeah. They're going to be nice about mm -hmm. it at first, but I mean, they want to eat you. Yeah, like Bill Watterson, he just kind of did something amazing and disappeared. He sold sixty some million copies of Catcher in the Rye, and it still sells like half a million every year, or some crazy. It's number really like that. well written, man. Top twenty. Top 20. Fun fact, he, so he was in World War II, right? He was trying to get into OCS, into officer candidate mm -hmm. school. They said, no, you're, you're too fresh for that. We're not going to do that. So then he went through all these military conflicts that he did as an enlisted op, as an enlisted man, which as you know, is a very different experience mm -hmm. than when you're, a, when you're a military officer, you're you actually get caught, you, you get a caught, 
you're going to see bullets mm -hmm. flying at you. You're going to see friends die. His whole group that he went to, um, that he went to Normandy with, three-fourths of them died. So he's seen a lot of stuff. A lot. So he, he actually did end up becoming a military officer over time. And he learned German. So he actually did some espionage in Germany and got some, uh, after Germany fell, he did some renaturalization work uh, with people. There was one woman in particular that he like denazified, mm -hmm. basically got her into the pipeline of being unnazified. Mm -hmm. And then he was married to her for like nine months, apparently. Yeah. So that's fun. That is fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun story. Anyway, so that's what I have about uh, J.D. Salinger. Not as much content as the Kardashians, but a nice contrast. Yeah, to but to be fair, he produced less work. He did. Less work. He did. Um, the Kardashians, they they have a content calendar schedule and rollouts. He was just like, I wrote a book. I hope you like it. Ooh, you liked it too much. You liked it too much. I'm, <laughs> I'm going go away. I'm going to sit in my house for about 60 years. I'm going to go to my cave and chill out and die in 2010 he died at 91 yeah yeah, yeah. And some of his work has been posthumously published but i've not read any of it by one of his presumably three wives he was married thrice three times well listeners this was delightful hopefully you enjoyed hearing about the kardashians about power in in our female performers and, and both the the loss of it and the regaining of it over time uh, as well as a bit of theater and a bit of the history of theater mm. and uh, some comments on J.D. Salinger's life and the catcher in the rye. Yeah, yeah. It's been, uh, it's really been education heavy this time. We hope you like it. If you don't, let us know. Yeah. Talk to us in the comments. And as always, catch you next lunch break. Catch you on the next lunch break. Bye. Bye. This has been Steven. And Laura. Thanks for tuning in to Midday Musings, the podcast where we talk about all the things on our mind. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and jump into the conversation in our polls and Q&As. We would love to hear from you. Catch you next lunch break.